Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the conversation around restricting talk of race in public schools continues at the state capitol. I'll speak with State Senator Kim Jackson as she shares her thoughts about Senate Bill 377. Plus, our Paycheck to Paycheck series continues as we examine how the fintech industry is looking to provide resources for unbanked and underbanked households. And the Truist Foundation has launched a pitch competition for nonprofits who support small businesses, especially those owned by women and people of color. All that's coming up next, but first this... This week marks one year since eight people were killed in shootings at three spas in Atlanta and Cherokee County. Six were Asian women. WABE's Emily Wu Pearson reports numbers from a national advocacy group that tracks race-based crimes show an increase in anti-Asian hate incidents nationwide in recent years. The group Stop AAPI Hate says anti-Asian comments from leading politicians about the pandemic prompted a national increase in harassment and violence toward Asians, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. Last year's spa shootings were some of the more than 6,000 reported hate incidents the organization recorded against the AAPI community in 2021. Manjusha Kulkarni is one of the co-founders of Stop AAPI Hate. It's not simply those incidents uh, that involve crime that create pain, trauma, and suffering for community members. Uh, If you're not able to pick up your prescriptions at your local pharmacy or your child is not able to go to school and feel safe and welcomed, all of those impact your daily life. Kulkarni says calling the police for crimes is not the only way to stop racist discrimination. You know, when you are refused service at a restaurant, a grocery store, you know, if you're discriminated at work or in your apartment complex, all of those can be redressed by our current laws. To prevent more anti-Asian discrimination, Stop AAPI Hate is calling for widespread education about the country's history of anti-Asian killings and laws. In the meantime, vigils are planned on Wednesday to honor the victims of the spa shootings one year ago. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And in other news, tributes and remembrances for Sam Massell, Atlanta's 53rd mayor who died Sunday at the age of 94. He was the city's first Jewish mayor and was elected in 1970 after serving on the city council for eight years. He was considered liberal at the time and was elected with help from Atlanta's black community. Four years later, Michelle would lose to Mayor Jackson, who became Atlanta's first black mayor. In a statement from MARTA, it read, MARTA mourns the loss of Atlanta political and civil, civic giant and former board member Sam Michelle. MARTA would not exist but for the dedication and persistence of Michelle, 
who convinced the Georgia legislature and later voters to approve the local option sales tax that continues to fund MARTA to this day, close quote. Former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin said of Sam Massell, his election as Atlanta's first Jewish mayor signaled we would embrace a new era of cultural diversity. He inspired a generation of advocates for public transit as an essential component of Atlanta's economic development plans and his leadership of the Buckhead Coalition definitely balanced the interests of the city and neighborhood. Mayor Franklin went on to say that his legacy, that Massell's legacy as mayor and as a civic leader is evident in the current economic success of the metro Atlanta region. Back in 2017, I had a conversation with Sam Sell upon the release of a biography titled Played Against Sam. During our conversation, I asked him about the discrimination he faced during his campaign for mayor. Were you prepared for a race that might include, at that time, maybe some ugly opposition in terms of campaigning that was anti-Semitic? To say I was prepared for it, uh, you know, at that time I was uh, early 40s, and uh, I'd been through a lot of instances of mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, sure. uh, you know, from uh, uh, the swimming pool in DeKalb County at the Venetian Club called, uh, that had a sign out front, no Jews or mm-hmm. dogs allowed, uh, having uh, my cabin in Mountain Park, Georgia, mysteriously burned to the ground after I got on the city council there. Uh, there are instances along the way that I experienced anti-Semitism. So, uh, was it a shock or surprise to encounter it when I ran for public office? No, but but it also helped uh, uh, guide me. It gave me a better understanding of what problems uh, could be and how to uh, help uh, correct those issues. And we also talked about his legacy. Now he was adamant when I asked him about how he liked to be remembered. He said, you know what? I'm still busy, Rose. At 91 years of age, I imagine you don't concern yourself with what your legacy is. Would you agree it's already written itself? Well, uh, I'm full, still full-time with the Buckhead Coalition. You're still, you still rolling. I'm, I'm working six days a week. I, Why? It was Why seven, are you still working? So you're supposed I, to be chilling. I enjoy it. That is <laughs> chilling to me that uh, I see progress and pro- prosperity. I see opportunities and challenges. And uh, I still work with the city council and the mayor's office and uh, issues of interest to, to our community and uh, we we love the entire city. I love Buckhead, where I focus all of my attention now. And um, uh, because of that, uh, it's an open-ended uh, opportunity. Uh, we haven't stopped, and uh, the biography just covers the first 90 years. We, we've got uh, some <laughs> got more some to more go. Years. From 2017, conversation with Sam Massell, Atlanta's 53rd mayor. He died Sunday at the age of 94. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.org. 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The efforts of Republican state lawmakers to pass a bill that would regulate conversations about race in schools was recently passed by the Georgia Senate. Senate Bill 377 is considered, yes, a controversial bill and seemingly would prevent teachers from teaching what they call divisive concepts in the classroom. The measure passed 32 to 20 along party lines. The Democrats voting no to the bill included State Senator Kim Jackson. And we spoke earlier today. Senator, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rose. I saw a quote where you said, quote you here, quote, this bill and the process by which it was written, introduced and ultimately may be passed. It will become in and of itself a prime example of a systemic racism, a systemic racism that is being enacted before our very eyes, not in the past, but now. Yeah, so... I mean, anytime you codify into law that something like systemic racism doesn't exist, it actually reinforces the notions of systemic racism. And that is, by definition, what systemic racism is. It's laws that uh, prohibit, that discriminate, discriminate, that create problems for people of a variety of races. So, yeah, we were watching systemic racism happen right in front of us. In section one of this measure... As I'm looking at it right now, it says, as used in this code section, the term divisive concepts means any of the following concepts, including views espousing such concepts. A, one race or ethnicity is inherently superior to another race or ethnicity. What do you make of that? Yeah, I agree. We should not uh, ever tell somebody that one race is inherently better than or superior than another one. That's not that's not our problem with the bill. Mm -hmm. And then B, the United States of America and the state of Georgia are fundamentally or systemically racist. And that's the rub right there. So the United States of America and the state of Georgia, um, while we can argue about what fundamentally means, um, the issue of systemically racism, racist, that's simply a fact. That is a truth. We know that there are systems throughout our country and throughout our state that has systemically discriminated against people of color by and large. Have you had conversations with your Republican counterparts about this bill? Absolutely. We've definitely had conversations and that's why the bill looks the way it does today. Um, it does look actually drastically different than the first uh, the first rounds or the first drafts as we've had more conversations to try to get it in a better place. But when you have these conversations, Senator, with your Republican counterparts, is there any sense of wanting to understand or comprehend through your viewpoint why you all have a problem with this bill? Most of the Democrats have a problem with this bill. All the Democrats have a problem with this bill. 
Sure. I mean, so I can say that the bill's author, Bo Hatchett, who's carried this bill, who is a Republican, um, has been very amenable to conversations about the bill. Um, if you might remember, the original bill included higher education as a part of this, that higher ed could not teach these quote, so-called divisive concepts. That was removed from the bill. Um, he has been open. I mean, I think fundamentally, we, def we definitely disagree around definitions of systemic racism and whether or not that should be taught. But there are a number of other places where we have been able to have a meeting of minds and come up with some compromise. Do you think this is a measure that would have even been introduced if this was not a huge election year? Of course not. We would not be having this conversation at all if this had not been a part of kind of the Republican space of trying to draw out their people saying, hey, you know, critical race theory is this thing that we should be afraid of. And so we're going to make laws against it. Governor Brian Kemp has indicated early on even before the session got underway, that he would support a measure like this? I guess I shouldn't ask, but I think I know the answer to this. Your thoughts on that? I think that he is doing what he believes his party wants him to do. Um, you know, the thing is, I think ultimately this is going to backfire on them. Um, teachers are incredibly strong voting block in the state, and they're very powerfully and wonderfully organized. And so uh, he, what he's doing actually is ostracizing himself from teachers, and I think that that's going to hurt him in the end. Um, but do I believe that this bill is probably going to be signed by him? Absolutely. He's already made that commitment. Do I think it's going to hurt him in the end? I absolutely do believe it'll hurt him. And I, I believe that it'll hurt our students in the classroom. I know you're not an attorney, but do you think there is a legal challenge here, a constitutional challenge to this, if it does become law? Right. So I know that this will be challenged. Undoubtedly, there's some questions about does this infringe on people's free speech? Does this infringe upon um, teachers ability to teach in ways that are holistic and full and that actually help you know students learn? So I'm sure that it will be challenged and we'll see what I'm not a lawyer. So we'll see what the judges have to say about that. A moment ago, I asked you about this being a big election season, a big election year. How would you characterize the this session down at the Capitol for you all, all of you all. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, because it's such a big election year, there have been a lot of these kind of big national issues that have been brought under the Gold Dome. And I think the thing that has disturbed me most is that a lot of these bills have actually been targeted towards our most innocent and most vulnerable. You know, if you look at the kind of big bills that Republicans are pushing, it's a tax against children. I think tax against what they can learn in school, what sports they can play while they're in school. Um, it's these kind of pushes about what you can teach or say. You know, we did have a don't say gay bill um, like in introduced here in Georgia as well. And so our children are kind of being laid out on the chopping block in the name of politics. And that's been most disappointing to me. You mentioned the, the bill that, through your view, targets transgender girls. You spoke passionately in the well about your experience of coming out. At a, at a young age, um, but as a measure that appears will be signed by Governor Kemp that would not allow transgender girls to play on girls' sports. Yeah, and I think that that's just misguided. Um, fundamentally, we have a responsibility to care for the most vulnerable. And when we look at this, trans girls are among the most vulnerable children that we have in our schools. And so um, I think that it's really important. I understand. I mean, I played, Rose, I played on the United States national level. I get elite sports. They're great. But when we're talking about children playing 
K through 12 sports, um, whether or not you're an elite athlete or not, that should not be the priority. The priority should be about kids being able to learn the skills that you get from being on a team. And they should be able to play with their peers on a team that matches their identity because that's what ultimately helps them be better. And so I'm really, I'm disappointed. I'm worried. I'm afraid for our trans girls. If they go into this environment, they won't be allowed to play sports that match their gender identity. And ultimately they'll lose out on some of the greatest gifts that you can receive by playing on team sports. Other measures that you're paying attention to that concern you, Senator? Yeah, so I I would like to actually end on a happy note. There are some really good bills that are coming forward around mental health care, which is another large vulnerable population that we have here in the state of Georgia. So the speaker's bill, HB 1013, it's making its way. It actually has a hearing today in the Senate side. Um, I'm excited about that. The information, all of the work that's included in that bill really will help advance our mental health care system in important ways. And there are some provisions in there that actually do help children who are experiencing mental illness as well. So it's not all doom and gloom down here. I want to be clear about that. Um, There are some positives, some highlights that are coming along the way as well. Democratic State Senator Kimberly Jackson. Senator, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Rose. It's good to see you. And Close Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The simple definition of an unbanked person is someone without a checking or savings account with what's considered an insured FDIC institution. Now for the term underbank, that refers to a household or individual with a checking or savings account, but regularly use it considering that they always use what's called alternative financial services. As we dip back into our Paycheck to Paycheck series, we're going to focus on the fintech industry. Over at Georgia Tech, there's a financial services innovation lab. And through a partnership with Equifax, it's supposed to allow researchers to understand and develop how to help the underserved, underbanked, as well as consumers working to rebuild their credit. Sudhir Shava is the Alton M. Costley Chair and a professor of finance in the Schweller College of Business at Georgia Tech. And he also leads the Financial Services Innovation Lab. So, Professor, welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. You heard my definitions considering for unbanked and underbanked households. Did I get it right? Was I pretty much on the money there? Yes, (laughs) yes. When you hear that still there is a a large, we don't consider large, there's a percentage of Americans and American households who are unbanked or underbanked. We talk about this in 2022. Is that surprising to you? Probably not. In some ways, uh, it is still surprising in the U.S. uh, because I think U.S. has been a bit behind some other countries on this dimension, especially on payments. So I would have expected a bit more... uh, of uh, inclusion in terms of uh, payments inclusion and financial inclusion by this time, it's uh, increasing, but not at the pace that uh, probably we would like to see. When you talk about not improving at the pace that we'd like to see, then how important when we talk about the fintech industry and technology being an accelerator in that industry, in, in this unbank and un- underbank sector here? So maybe before we go there, maybe it makes sense to take a step back and ask why are people unbanked or underbanked? Sure, let's go so for it. About, yeah, if you think about uh, probably the approximately 7 million people in the consumers in the U.S. who are unbanked, 
There are few reasons for that. The FDIC survey and others uh, ask uh, the consumers for the reasons. And uh, one of the reasons is given is that the distrust in the banking system. Uh, they might be more risk averse. They don't want to trust the banking system. But this, uh, that probably is a long-term uh, financial literacy and education issue. One can't change it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe fintechs through some new products uh, might be able to change it in the sense that uh, maybe some consumers might not uh, trust uh, uh, a bank, but they might be a bit more able to trust a fintech with the support of some neighborhood communities and others, especially if it's... Uh, more of a benefit corporation and if it's helping people. But a more important segment of the population who are unbanked are because they don't have resources. Mm-hmm. The cost of banking services are too high or they don't have enough funds for them to put in. So that's where probably fintechs can help better because they can reduce the cost through a better use of technology. So distrust in the banking system and also resources and also looking at from everything from maybe uh, the amounts that's needed to open a checking or savings account. And then you throw in all the fees and we can have a whole cup, another conversation about banking fees. And for some folks that adds up, you know, even if it's just nine dollars a month, if you are really tight to your budget, regardless of whatever your income is, you don't want extra fees from the place where you have your money in the first place, which are, you know, so that's totally understandable. Yeah, that's true, because even though the numbers, the dollar number might look small, relative to the income of the consumer, they might be high. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, they might not be able to afford. There's some this survey which shows that uh, in case uh, there's a $400 emergency uh, cost, that, uh, for example, uh, a flood in Houston or mm-hmm. a car repair happens, then how do they pay for it? A significant uh, percentage of the U.S. consumers don't have the savings for it. Mm-hmm. So then they had to, again, put that on a card or borrow money. And that's where, again, the cost comes in. We've if been... they go into like, down, and are they able to recover back later? Because the fees might be higher. They might not be borrowed at the, from the right um, segment of the financial services industry. We've been hearing that reference a lot, especially with our Paycheck to Paycheck series, which isn't new, that most, I think was... In the 70s, 70% of most American households wouldn't have $400 for an emergency. So you're absolutely right about that. Also, before we continue, Professor, for our listeners who may not quite understand, when we talk about the fintech sector, the fintech industry, give a definition for them. So fintech, uh, if I, I think of all of finance as fintech because finance uses any of the banking, uh, uses technology. But maybe the way to think about is uh, the traditional banks use lower amount of technology, even though JP Morgan puts in around $12 billion of technology spending every year. But many of the new fintech players who are coming in, they're more technology first. They might not have branches. They're much more uh, of, um, they don't have the legacy systems. Mm -hmm. So they might be able to operate at a lower cost. And they also probably don't have as much of um, uh, cost in terms of regulatory costs. But uh, again, I don't, uh, it's tough to separate. I think of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, you have the big, really big banks and where we see the branches everywhere. But on the other hand, you have these fintech players, which might be a bank, but you might not see any branch anywhere. Mm-hmm. They might be operating behind the scenes or they might be directly dealing with the consumers. It's a and, spectrum. 
Gotcha. And for folks who may want to take that a little bit further, you're talking also with some banks that are just strictly online. There are no physical branches to go into, which for some folks, you know, growing up, I remember my dad loved going to the bank. I remember getting my first bank book, uh, but this is 2022, so technology has definitely changed that. Professor, also, let's talk about this Financial Services Innovation Lab uh, at Georgia Tech. For our listeners, again, explain how this all came about. Yeah, thank you. So Georgia Tech uh, is a university which uh, prides on interdisciplinary collaboration and also collaboration with uh, industry. So that's what we try to do with the Financial Services Innovation Lab. Uh, we are researchers first and foremost. So what we do is try to come out with new insights. So the lab, the research that we do spans three broad areas. Mm-hmm. The first area is responsible and sustainable finance. We don't think of the uh, the firm not for st- stockholders. There's different stakeholders. Mm-hmm. It might be employees. It might be the lenders. It might be the communities in which they operate. So firm has different stakeholders. We try to understand that and uh, do fundamental research on that. And second is in terms of uh, the household finance. In, uh, that also, because uh, as in the show that you have mentioned, uh, not having enough financial resources or living paycheck to paycheck causes significant financial like stress for people mm-hmm. and it might even lead to health problems. We try to understand the household financial data and uh, try to make the understand the decisions and come out with research and insights that might help consumers through a financial literacy but it also might be relevant for policy makers mm-hmm. on what kind of policies they might put in, or it might be relevant for fintechs or others to come in and say, these are some of the insights identified by the lab. Can we take it and create a product which can ameliorate some of these issues? Mm-hmm. That's one research. And we are also educators uh, being a like, university. So we try to take all the insights and educate consumers and also our students. And, so- and finally in industry, where we try to, like, uh, we think of Georgia Tech as a resource, not only to the students, but also the Georgia, the people of Georgia, and uh, to the companies in Georgia. That's why we collaborate extensively with the uh, industry, and especially with the local industry. For example, Equifax is a partnership you discussed, and also Invesco and mm-hmm. a bunch of other companies. So let's move then to this partnership with Equifax, because if you all are doing a lot of research, and you mentioned responsible and sustainable finance, you mentioned understanding household finances, and then you mentioned also just being not being just a resource for Atlanta, but for Georgia. Well, if you're talking about people and their finances and, and financial literacy, then credit scores <laughs> obviously come into play here. How are you all working with Equifax on this particular project here, this particular initiative? Thank you. Yeah, Equifax, we have been trying to like uh, work on this partnership for uh, seven, eight years and uh, have a couple of PhD students who have been working inside. But we thought we'll expand the partnership because we saw the potential to do even better and help more people. The broad idea is to the initiative is uh, to do two things. Mm -hmm. One, to understand barriers to credit access. As you mentioned at the very beginning of the segment, there's a significant portion who are unbanked, underbanked. Mm-hmm. But what are those barriers that prevent them from being unbanked and underbanked? We want to use the data that Equifax has and most of the U.S. consumers and say, why is that these consumers are unbanked, underbanked? Mm-hmm. Is it because they have thin credit files and they don't have enough uh, data for them to be scored, credit score? There's a credit score for them. And that's why many of the traditional lenders are fintechs are not providing. Mm-hmm. So if so, what are the kind of data sets that we can bring in together 
so that one can score them so that they can be included in the traditional financial system to increase financial inclusion but the first step of the process is to understand those barriers in terms of um, uh, credit access mm-hmm. the second thing that we have planned to do is also understand barriers to entrepreneurship not mm-hmm. only fintech but broadly entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship is a engine of growth mm-hmm. and we want entrepreneurship to be inclusive but part of the reason is again entrepreneurship is not spread uniformly across the country geographically but also across uh, various demographics so mm-hmm. we want to understand that so that the insights can help policy makers but also other regulators to come out with some initiatives which can help increase that what kind of information will you all get from Equifax then? I mean, when we think of Equifax and the other two major credit reporting agencies, we think of our credit score and we think of, because when you have to apply for a loan, what's the first thing they want to know? Obviously, one, they want to argue a responsible consumer here. And some will argue, and you know this, Professor, that perhaps there needs to be some modifications to the, or overhaul to the credit reporting system for some folks. Sure, I think there's arguments for that, and uh, there's arguments. The, the issue would be the data with Equifax or the in general credit bureau. They are in the data business. They want to get in as much data as possible mm-hmm. and uh, in, more efficiently. Uh, the example I would say is the traditional credit bureau data would be getting the trade line data from your every single the bank. Whether, whether you have a credit card or not, whether a mortgage is paid or not. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of data which banks send. But they're supplementing them with the last 10 years with alternate data that includes the utility bills, that includes the rental information, that includes uh, even some kind of transaction. So they're trying to supplement that. And the idea is that maybe some consumers don't have all the traditional data. Mm-hmm. Can we use, supplement this with alternate data so that we can figure out uh, a credit scoring model and better the consumers who have better credit risk but the traditional credit scoring models are missing out mm-hmm. so the data is i think of a sequential thing because many of the players there's lots of data being generated and it's a matter of getting it that cleaning it and getting it more because you don't want mistakes and sure. credit, because that can have significant impact so there's a lot that goes on into getting into the credit bureaus, but they're expanding on the data. My hope is that in the future, more and more people might be scored and the financial inclusion will increase as part of our initiative that we are doing. So with that information that you just talked about and, and that data that's coming from Equifax and then what you all hope to do with that, what's the next phase after that then? Once we understand uh, the uh, the barriers to credit access, uh, we do plan to do two things. One is in terms of literacy, financial literacy, as we are in the education. Uh, so we want to educate the consumers on uh, any mistakes they make as part of this process. Why is why are they not scored? Mm-hmm. Or it might be are they using the credit responsibly? So nowadays, this a number of players getting credit is some ways easy. Last few years, but it also using responsibly is important. Because just because the credit is available, the income doesn't increase, mm-hmm. then people might be more indebted. So what we would like to do is one is the financial literacy that comes out from the insights. But the second and important thing is also maybe entrepreneurship. Once we put these insights, mm-hmm. there might be that fintechs that come in. And as you mentioned earlier, they might say, I might tackle this problem of the segment of consumers cheaper. We might be able to create a product which helps the segment of consumers do that. 
So we want to facilitate that kind of inclusive fintech entrepreneurship by making it easy for entrepreneurs to come in and start their business. So we are doing a fintech sandbox where that can happen easily. So when we talk about financial literacy and then we talk about entrepreneurship and then folks listening say, well, that's great. But then also, too, how do you all measure or will you be able to measure the outcomes of this? I mean, I know that's perhaps a question may not be fair, but we may could take two or three years down the road here. But we keep listen. I've done this for a long time and everyone I'm about to have another conversation about entrepreneurs, particularly related to people of color and for women. Everyone's got a lot of initiatives. Everyone's got a lot of programs. But at the end of the day, how do we know what's working and did it work? That's true, and the measurement is important. Success metrics are important, and it's a tough problem. The reason why I think it might happen is, uh, like, again, tough problem. I think of it as all experiments. The intentions are good, and experiments, some work, some don't work. It's a problem worth solving, mm -hmm. and we are doing it in our own small way, and there's uh, hundreds of experiments that way. The way, at least, I personally look at the success of this is, one, there will be valuable insights which come out which we publish in academic journals, but also which policy may be to, uh, through conferences, through dissemination, because mm -hmm. what we are doing is all open source. We disseminate this because we're not holding any information. So we want to as widely disseminate the findings that we get. So as many policymakers or as many in the industry can use them. That's one. The number of insights that come out and we plan to once uh, we get to scale, we plan to release them regularly every quarter or every six months. That's one. That's next phase because it's a tough problem. That's why we don't want to take on too much at the same time. That's mm -hmm. why once we get the insights, we have this going. That's when we want to create the sandbox because that will take more resources. But start in a slow manner. Initially, get the entrepreneurs from Georgia, including students from Georgia Tech, in the CreateX, which is a great program at Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. ATDC, which is again another great resource in Georgia. So get some select entrepreneurs from that, involved with this fintech sandbox, let them start some products, and then maybe if this as an experiment. Again, I don't think of this as uh, we are in the business of setting up businesses, mm -hmm. but it's more about as an experiment to make it cut short the process. Then how will you reach how will you reach consumers to be part of this experiment? How will you choose them? Uh, no, we are not going to choose consumers. Okay. So we are going to choose uh, startups in the second phase. Uh, we are going to like startups, some student-led startups and uh, some from ATDC might apply mm -hmm. and there might be a selection based on whether we can help them. Well, can the you ensure, but part of the issue too is that when we talk about the barriers and, and often we're talking about communities of color and for women, we, we talk about entrepreneurship and, and small businesses, will you make sure that that student pool then is, is representative of the folks who are actually presented with the problem of being underbanked and unbanked. No, definitely, because that's important, because being in that community, the kind of understanding that comes out of it inside, being inside is going to be much greater than what one can only do from outside in. Mm -hmm. So definitely, we, we do want to do on two dimensions. One is in terms of the problem that's being solved, is the worthy problem to solve. And second is who is solving, so that's also diverse. So we definitely want to take that into account. Uh, it's, again, going to be an iterative process. Uh, again, we are not saying we will be able to solve the problem. Sure. We're going to try a small slice of it, and hopefully some of this would be useful and can be scaled up later. Finally, Professor, as we wrap up, when you think about, because this is the whole point of this series, folks living paycheck to paycheck, 
when you think about what is priority, and again, this is a holistic approach. I know everyone's going to say that, so I'm just going to say it before I ask everybody. We know it's a holistic approach when we talk about shortening the disparity gap and the income inequality gap and why folks are living paycheck to paycheck. What do you hope is at the core of the conversation in terms of the approach to, to figuring this out for people, for households? Again, that's a tough uh, issue with multiple dimensions, as you said. But the way I would think of ultimately everything starts with uh, wages. So income, right? I think it's not only getting the income, the mm -hmm. level of income, but also having a growth in income. And that growth in income is going to come from upskilling. So one has to, as one goes in, it is like one has to keep acquiring new skills or education, which the skills in demand, that's going to lead to growth as we see more automation and certain jobs are going to pay less or they might become redundant and some jobs are going to be more in demand. So it's about education, it's about upskilling so that the level of job, the, the wages go up. Second is in terms of getting the wages in time. So maybe one doesn't need to wait uh, one week or two weeks to get the wages. So the consumer goes to a payday loan to, mm -hmm. in order to get it and pay the fee, but maybe through real-time payments, get it in time. At the same time, even if the wages come in time, financial discipline, mm -hmm. because there's some research that shows that getting everyday wages might be good on some dimensions, but might also increase the expenses because consumers are not thinking the entire month expenses. Right. So financial literacy, financial discipline is also important. Yeah, we should know for some folks, because we've asked in our own survey, folks will tell you, look, it's hard to save money when you're in debt, and it's hard to save money when you just have to meet those monthly expenses. Sudhir Shava leads the Financial Services Innovation Lab at Georgia Tech. They're in a partnership with Equifax. And we've been talking about the focus of the lab, which is to research and understand responsible and sustainable finance. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. I appreciate you being part of our Paycheck to Paycheck series. Okay, thank you, Rose. Enjoy the discussion. I hear you, Lois, talking to Nappy Roots. That's what's up. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Talk to any business owner about their top concerns, and surely they'll probably mention attracting and retaining a robust customer base. But even before all that, startup capital is also a top priority. And for small business owners who are people of color or women, there could be many other barriers. Well, the folks at the Truist Foundation want to help those small businesses by helping the nonprofits that help them. The foundation is currently taking applications for its Inspire Awards, and the nonprofit that's funded, that wins, will be funded with a quarter million dollars to help launch the project aimed at helping those small business owners. Lynette Bell is the president of the Truist Foundation. She's been on this program before and joins me again. Lynette, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Rose. I really appreciate the opportunity. You heard the conversation before and the, the segment uh, prior to this one where we were talking about barriers when it comes to people's finances. Uh, what was your takeaway from that conversation in terms of folks living paycheck to paycheck and how we, we consider financial literacy and entrepreneurship the key to getting folks possibly out of that situation? Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. As you know, you know, that is a dilemma that we face in this country across many segments of income, right? Living paycheck to paycheck. And I thought the professor had some really great solutions and uh, some cohort work that they're going to do around that. I, I think one of the things that has been the most distressing for individuals is that, oh, well, gosh, we had the pandemic mm -hmm. and then we had the racial equity movement, right? And then we 
now have a war in Ukraine and, you know, prices and the volatility in the market is just there and people trying to readjust, right, so that they could still sustain their families in the right manner is really critical. But at this point in time, getting that kind of educational toolkit so that they can make better choices financially for themselves and their families or better yet, I think the professor was talking about at, at the end of the conversation, how do those individuals continue to transfer skill sets so mm -hmm. that they can earn living wages to support themselves and their families or build the wealth for them families. He talked about upskilling and reskilling. So I think all of those components are necessary roles in order for us to really tackle, right? Mm -hmm. Changing the economic conditions of families who have been underserved and underrepresented. And at the Truist Foundation, you all have a a listener told me stop using this word lens, but I'm gonna say it anyway. At the Truth <laughs> Foundation, you all have a lens where you're focusing on financial literacy and also helping small businesses, obviously those who are owned by women or people of color, with these Inspire Awards. You're taking a di different approach. You're gonna look for a nonprofit or not of those nonprofits that are also helping small businesses with a focus on those particular business owners. Did I get that right? Yeah, you actually got it right. One of the things that happened, so we had the merger between SunTrust and BB&T, came mm -hmm. out of the merger, really still supporting a lot of our legacy investments around the communities. And then we were like, let's get very strategic about this. And we landed on these two great pillars, um, strengthening small businesses and career pathways to economic mobility. Going back to Georgia Tech's conversation around how people upskill and reskill to better their economic mobility. We thought, how can we use innovation mm -hmm. in this day and time based on what's changing in our economy and our environments to really strengthen small businesses? And we, you know, as an endowed foundation can only support nonprofits, but we know that that end user is that small business. And so mm -hmm. the Truist Foundation has partnered with MIT Solve, uh, the nonprofit arm of MIT, to help qualify nonprofits to help answer that question. What innovative solutions are they providing to provide that transformational support to women mm -hmm. and BIPOC-owned businesses in the U.S. to help them grow and build that sustainability? And so we thought, let's do something unique and different, not do the same old thing, look for grantees and just write a check, but really talk about building this Inspire Awards. This is our first year rolling it out, mm -hmm. but we want to tap into this and build on it every year so that in three years or five years, we can see changes in the small business ecosystem. And that's really where we focus, Rose, is like, we don't want to just scatter seeds randomly. We want to make mm -hmm. impactful changes, eradicating those fractures in the ecosystem for small business. You know, the conversation about how do small business gives access to capital? We've been mm -hmm. having this conversation, it feels like, for 20 years. I know, I've been the having Federal a conversation Bank, for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. The Federal Reserve Bank has tons of white papers and research on that. And the question then becomes, if well, we've done the research and we got the white papers, then that means the ecosystem is fractured. And so we really want to address that. Okay, so there's a small, there's a, a nonprofit CEO somewhere that has pulled over and said, okay, I'm going to take notes here because Lynn Bell, president of the Truist Foundation, says perhaps we can be a part of this. What are you all looking for? Are you, are you looking for a, a nonprofit or nonprofits that can give you data that suggests or something that says this is what we've been doing here's something concrete here are the metrics to prove that we are doing this or and we've already done it or you want a nonprofit to say hey, this is what we would like to do but we could use some help in funding to get it launched 
or is it yeah. above yeah. all the above? Yeah, this competition, we believe, um, is one that's going to be a little more dynamic and innovative. And so we want this competition to support maybe that grassroots organization, to your point, that's a nonprofit going, I have that innovative solution, but I have not been able to fund it. Mm -hmm. Or it could be a nonprofit that's been in existence, like, hey, I get this great idea that's going to shore up this part of the ecosystem for small businesses. And they've been in business for a number of years. But we really were talking about how do we provide this catalytic funding to those grassroots organizations who may or may not have gotten traditional funding in the past so that they can continue to serve their communities day in and day out, but don't have the resources or the development director to really get the funding to continue to sustain, to create sustainability or scale. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, how do we get to them? And so when we talked to the partners at MIT Solve, they were like, we have the right solution. We've got this fast pitch competition idea that's a solvathon. And they've done thousands of these across the country. And so we felt like this is a way to tap into, to your point, either that grassroots nonprofit who has not gotten traditional funding or one who has gotten traditional funding but cannot build the scale they need to provide the solution. So the application process is open. And is yes. it well, is it kind of like American Idol meets Shark Tank meets the nonprofit <laughs> world? I mean, are you like will you all be sitting at a table saying you got two minutes, go? Yeah. The good news is it's a little bit of everything. Um, it is a Shark Tank-like environment, which will be the live event in Charlotte, North Carolina on October 20th. But the good news is partnering with MIT Solve, they're going to get all types of wraparound supportive services for them, how to do a pitch. But even wraparound supportive services on how do you continue to build sustainability inside of this nonprofit organization? How do you create the access, right? by getting this type of solution out there and helping to, to understand investing. So they'll get a lot of wraparound services. The other piece of this for the finalists and the winner of this, we're gonna provide them with a leadership development training platform, like how to use a nonprofit, continue to ensure that you train your leader who is in front of you and the one who's behind you. And so the Truest Leadership Institute will also be providing direct support with training classes for these individuals as they get into this final. So yeah, we'll be at the table like Shark Tank a little bit, letting them do their pitch and making a decision. We'll have an audience favorite um, and hopefully we'll have a lot of people virtually tapping into this event on October 20th. So mm -hmm. we're so excited to do something so uniquely different than just writing a check to nonprofits going, hey, you had a great idea, here's a check. By the way, in case you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Lynette Bell. She's the president of the Truest Foundation. We're talking about the foundation's Inspire Awards aimed at helping nonprofits that help minority and women-owned small businesses. I got text messages and I've got emails. I'm not helping y'all get your application <laughs> through the process. <laughs> when will you all make, will you all have finalists? And when's that process going to so get to that phase? And Yeah, so um, nonprofits have, so the pitch competition is open right now. They have until May 13th to apply and get their idea in, the pitch idea in, and answer the questions. And then we'll close it down. Then they'll go through a rigorous process with MIT on providing, as I talked to earlier about that wraparound supportive services. Mm -hmm. And so we're really excited about this. I just posted on LinkedIn on Friday, another video about the pitch uh, competition. And so we hope to get a plethora of organizations, big and small, to actually apply and get some great innovative solutions around 
the small business ecosystem, because once we short small businesses, what the pandemic identified, Rose, as you well know, mm -hmm. is that, wow, when small businesses suffer, our economy suffers greatly sure. in this country. Absolutely. And, and will, will you all be tracking and working with the, the not, and will it be, let me back up, will it be just one nonprofit that gets awarded this 250000 or is it a bigger pot for a lot of folks? A big pot for a lot. So of yeah, it's, uh, so we'll have seven finalists, and there'll be up to a million dollars in prizes. The winner gets two hundred and fifty, and then we have subsequent prizes for you know third place, second place, audience favorite. They will get an award. Um, for those who are selected as finalists, they also will get you know a you know kind of thanks for playing uh, contribution from our foundation as well. So, but they will not get the big big ticket, right? So the Rose Scott nonprofit, the Rose Scott Home for <laughs> Wayward Cats. <laughs> Probably not a good candidate for this. Not a, not a good candidate for this at this time, no. Well, I'm, I'm, I, might, I might be helping a small business that, you know, to want to work with. You could be. You could be. But remember, we want strengthening small business as nonprofits who are doing some of this work to help that ecosystem. The cats is a great idea. I do love cats. <laughs> <laughs> as we begin to wrap up, what kind of larger structural changes are needed to make it easier for, you know, through your viewpoint for minority-owned small businesses to succeed, Lynn? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a couple of things. I think when we think about access to capital, everybody wants to go down the, tradi the traditional bandwagon, mm -hmm. right? But I will say for new and startup firms, right, for small businesses, meaning you've been in business less than three years, you have less than 10 employees, a traditional source of funding may not be for you, but you know, there's great intermediaries out there that many banks fund, including us, that are called community development financial institutions who have a mission to support and strengthen small micro to small businesses, mm -hmm. which is great. So if you have that great idea about, hey, Rose has a cat foundation that she wants to support, <laughs> right? There's a CDFI out there, Rose, that can give you not only the technical expertise, help you write your business plan, but guess what they do? They go on the guarantee and give you the loan based on your concept and idea versus looking for a term loan secured mm -hmm. by assets, which is a lot of the traditional financing, right? But they, because of their mission and what they're doing, and again, those CDFIs are funded by the U.S. government because Absolutely. they get an appropriated amount through the CDFI fund every year out of treasury. And so their job is to make sure that small and micro businesses get a level playing field. Well, so that's what I think is the first thing. They need to make sure they look for all of the resources that really apply to you where they are at that time today. Well, and Lynette, look, the, everyone keeps saying, well, you know, the pandemic has really amplified or, or, or really, you know, uh, shined a light on all the inequities and inequalities that existed. And, and OK, we, we know this. And again, if we're going to get to this equal playing field, you know, from a holistic approach, then. Are there some sectors that need to be a bigger player in all of this? I mean, look, you, you're you part of Truist Foundation, which is part of Truist Bank, which is a big banking, big financial institution. You know, yep. does does that, does the culture or the, back up, does the mindset need to change with some of the leaders in your world about who they're giving services to and how they give services to those folks? Because we're all from different, you know, income levels. Or yep. is it already changing and maybe I don't know about it? So I think two things are happening, right? So the financial services industry, one, based on some regulatory requirements, has to be concerned about small businesses, right? That they don't get a pass on that. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of the Community Reinvestment Act and some other legislation, you've got to focus on small businesses. And so you asked a valid question. 
is enough being done, right, to support mm -hmm. that ecosystem. And I think the easiest pathway is to look at traditional sources of funding, i.e. your capital, which is, hey, do I get a term loan? Do I get a credit card loan? When in fact, many small businesses need that kind of um, patch or hand-holding, right, to get to that level of mm -hmm. traditional financing. And for me, yes, some banks are already moving to that point, that point place. And we're thinking about it, like what products and solutions do we need? We're doing the same thing at Truist. I'm sure they're doing it at other financial institutions. What's the gap product that's needed to help the client? But to me, a lot of small businesses need that technical assistance, particularly around the finances. And so those CDFI intermediaries, and they're across the country roads. Right. You just need to find the one in your state and your city. Those are your first stop to get that baseline so that when you walk in for the traditional because you've been in business for three years i've proven my track record i've got the finance gotcha then i want the traditional funding All but right. i think that needs to happen as well i think the technical side of it still is missing to a large degree for micro and small businesses gotcha lynette bell she's president of the truest foundation and we're discussing the foundation's inspire awards aimed at helping nonprofits that help minority and women-owned small business lynette thank you for taking the time i really appreciate it we'll have a link to the information on how small how nonprofits can apply for that information. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Our other producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Y'all know he rides a bike. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And you can also listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as on our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned. Fresh Air is next to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.